Welcome back to The Law with D.K. Williams. That's me. And as always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is episode five of The Law. We're going to talk about Wickard v. Filburn, the day federalism died, November 9th, 1942. The concept of federalism had been in its death throes since the beginning of the progressive movement, which can best be described as this this movement that, that fostered this notion or that grew out of this notion that some people are smart enough to figure out what's best for everybody and that these people should be in charge of society, of government, in, including the economy and education and production and farming, you name it. Smart people should be in charge of it because us commoners, us serfs, aren't smart enough to, to deal with important things like that. And so that's what the progressive era was about, about creating a better society behind the force of government with really smart people telling everybody the best ways to behave. And that's what Wickard Filburn deals with. It deals with a, a, a segment of that. It deals with part of the New, New Deal plan that limited how much wheat farmers could grow. Just a little tiny slice of the New Deal, but still a great example of what the New Deal was all about. So we'll get into that a little bit more and, and into some more detail. The Progressive Era was from about 1890 to 1920. Um, if you know, um, Woodrow Wilson was one of the first uh, big progressives that became elected president. He was president in 1913 and served eight years until 1921. And he was an intellectual, an academic he was at Princeton, the president of Princeton. So he came from this idea that you know, if we can study this stuff, if we can study how to make the world better through government and through planning, we're going to do it, man. And we're going to make, make, make man better by government planning and bureaucracy. And that wasn't a bad word back then to these people. You had bureaus, right? And each bureau had a specialty. And you put people in those bureaus that were going to create rules and regulations that would make us closer and closer to a, a perfect society, right? So they believed in this stuff. And where did this idea come from? We'll get into that in, in a second. But first of all, let's, I'm going to do a little quote from, from Woodrow Wilson himself to kind of give you an idea about how progressives during this era, and still today, but especially during this era, what did they think of the Constitution? Was it something that was useful to them? Or was it something that was in their way? Was it something that was going to stop them from implementing their wonderful plans based on all the knowledge that they had? Um, so the rest of us can be better off as long as we do what they tell us we're supposed to do. All right, here's a quote from Wilson. All that progressives ask or desire is permission. In an era when development, evolution is a scientific word to interpret the Constitution according to the Darwinian principle, all they ask is recognition of the fact that a nation is a living thing and not a machine. End of the quote. So what's he saying there? He's talking about evolution. He wants the country to be able to evolve. He wants to interpret the Constitution in an evolving way, according to the Darwinian principle. Except here's the difference with evolution. Actual evolution? Evolution occurs naturally, not at the direction of some intellectually superior being or group of beings or, or board of bureaucrats. Now, unless you're going to continue this metaphor and say that the superior being, when it comes to evolution, is God... And if we're going to make society evolve and have the Constitution evolve to let us do that, who puts themselves in the role of that supreme being of God? Well, the progressives do. They are going to direct where this evolution goes because they know best. Some televangelist a long time ago, it might have been Jim Baker, I'm not positive, when he was getting criticized for like gold fixtures in his bathrooms of his mansion, he said something to the effect of, 
hey, God doesn't deserve junk. And of course, he's making the mistake of confusing himself with God. God wasn't using those fixtures. He was. And that's kind of what the progressives have done in this idea of controlling evolution. They're putting themselves in the role of the omniscient being who knows more than everyone else. After Wilson was president, there were three Republicans, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover. Coolidge, of course, was the best of them all. In my estimation, the last good Republican president, one who believed in limited government. And then we had FDR. So FDR was elected in 30 and served until he died in 1945. And Wickard v. Filburn arises out of one of his New Deal programs. A little bit more about where this, this bureaucracy idea, this progressive idea comes from. You think about the historical time period, the, the progressives, and it started in Germany. And I've learned a lot of this from uh, my friend Tom Cranowitter over at Speakeasy Ideas, so go check that out. And his help in putting these things together and with the equipment has been uh, invaluable. So he had this German school of thought that had observed the remarkable progress right, that had been going on in inventions. Internal combustion engine, steam engine, the cotton gin, riverboats, all manner of these cool things that were actually making the world a better place, right? We could produce more. It took most of the world out of poverty. That's because of this, these innovations, right? And these innovations were because people wanted to make money. They wanted to create a cotton gin, for example, to make it easier to produce more cotton, which would result in more money. Capitalism ends poverty. If you really want to end poverty, support capitalism, not progressivism. And we're going to talk about that. So they looked at all these great inventions that were going on in this time period. And they said, you know what? If scientists can figure out science and, and, and mechanics can figure out mechanics of how things work. And we had people flying. You had the airplane, right? The Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk in 1903. So if these people can figure this stuff out in medicine and science and everything else of these nature, the, the scientific stuff, then people trained in society should be able to make society better, just like the mechanics are making mechanics better. Science is advancing science, figuring out medicine, all these wonderful things that smart people are figuring out. We need to do that for humans, for society. So that's where the progressives, if you know how to centrally plan an economy, let, we, we should do that. And they said, well, if we studied hard enough, if we figure it out, we can centrally plan the economy. We can be as successful as the Wright brothers were, for example. And there's a certain patina of sense to that notion, especially if you have a very heightened sense of yourself, how smart you are, that you know better than other people. You can see, hey, look at all these people over here screwing things up. I can tell them how to do things better. And the Wright brothers can tell us how to fly a plane. Somebody can be smart enough to tell people how to live, how to produce the most stuff, what price to charge it at. Because progressive, progressivism is all about controlling the economy and centrally planning it because they know better. They know like the Wright brothers know airplanes, right? They know the economy. That's, that's what they were striving for. But here's the problem with that. Eli Whitney with the cotton gin, the Wright brothers with the airplanes. These people were doing things that people wanted, that they voluntarily purchased. The Wright brothers didn't make anyone fly in an airplane. The Wright brothers didn't make anyone buy an airplane or a bicycle for that matter. They, they were bicycle uh, makers and mechanics before they invented the airplane, made it fly. Eli Whitney didn't make anybody buy the cotton gin, but these bureaucrats were going to make people do things. That's all the difference in the world. I think most libertarians get that. And it showed how much productivity increased with the cotton gin. In 1793, before any engines were working, the cotton gin was hand-cranked, the, the original one that Eli Whitney invented. The average cotton picker, just by himself, without any type of gin, in 1793, could remove the seeds from about one pound of cotton a day. With Whitney's hand crank machine, they could remove the seeds from 50 
pounds of cotton in a single day. One versus 50 with the help of innovation of a machine. That productivity equals money. Money equals less poverty. Money and profit lead to a higher standard of living. If you don't have to spend all day to get one pound of usable cotton to make some cloth, you can spend your time doing other things. You can build something else. You can read. You can walk. You can even sleep so you don't have to die of exhaustion in your 30s. Robert Fulton invented the steamboat in 1807. In 1859, a French engineer, J.J. Etienne Lenoir, or as we would say in North Carolina, Lenoir, but I think it's Lenoir, Lenoir, built the first spark ignition engine that could be operated continuously. So it's an internal combustion engine. Alexander Graham Bell had the phone in 1876. Quick aside, I learned from touring Mark Twain's house that he turned down an opportunity to invest in the telephone. Alexander Graham Bell said, hey, you want to help me uh, get this off the ground? Throw a little money my way? You'll own a piece of this? Twain said, nah, Nobody wants that. He was wrong. So then the Wright brothers in 1903. So you see how these smart people improve the world. They're specialists. The progressives wanted to have specialists run the economy, run society, the bureaucrats. And in that vein, that's what FDR was doing. He was setting up a bureaucracy through the New Deal so that bureaucrats could run the economy. So where could be Filburn? The case itself. Who are they? Roscoe Filburn was an Ohio farmer in what is now what would now be outside of Dayton. Claude R. Wickard was FDR's Secretary of Agriculture. As part of the New Deal, backed by or supported by FDR and, and the Congress, Congress passed the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938. Filburn admitted that he produced more than he was supposed to under that act and under the sole regulatory process that was set up under that act. But he said, hey, the wheat I am growing is for my own private consumption on my farm. It didn't enter commerce at all, much less interstate commerce. He didn't sell it and it didn't cross the state line. So it was neither interstate nor commerce. So the federal government has no jurisdiction, according to Filburn, and those of us who give words their normal and ordinary meanings, there's no jurisdiction for the federal government to regulate what he was doing, growing and consuming wheat. The feds disagreed. And here are the actual numbers. Under his allotment, under this Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938, Filburn in 1941 was allowed to grow on 11.1 acres and he was supposed to get a yield of 20.1 bushels of wheat per acre. And he knew about this, right? Nobody disagrees. He, he was given these notices. This is what you are allowed to grow. No more. He planted 23 acres instead and ended up harvesting 239 more bushels of wheat than he was allowed from his allotment, according to the central planners in FDR's administration. The lower court ruled in Filburn's favor. Of course, the government appealed to the Supreme Court, which they, and they upheld this agricultural act. And it's funny because they referred to the district court's uh, holding as, quote, manifest error, unquote, which means like an obvious error. Like, God, that was really stupid for you guys to decide that, right? And I'm always kind of amused when one group of judges tells another group of judges that they're stupid. Because if they can't figure it out, don't, don't feel bad if they tell you you can't figure it out. And at the time the case reached the U.S. Supreme Court, eight of the nine justices had been appointed by FDR. That played a role, right? And just by way of some historical context, this case was heard shortly after the attack on Pearl Harbor and before, right after the United States entered World War II. And so some people think that, you know, a strong central government was needed to fight the war. You know, you can make that argument. And that, therefore, we needed a strong central government to do everything, right, and to control the wheat crop. So we talked about the Interstate Commerce Clause. Let's look at exactly what it says in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, which is the enumerated powers of the federal government, the powers that the federal government is limited to, 17 things, 18 depending on how you count them, are listed that the federal government can do. This one 
that is important for this case and in American society. The Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the several states. That's the important part, the pertinent part. Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce among the several states. The opinion itself describes what Filburn had been doing. It says, quote, For many years, he has owned and operated a small farm in Montgomery County, Ohio, maintaining a herd of dairy cattle, selling milk, raising poultry, and selling poultry and eggs. It has been his practice to raise a small acreage of winter wheat, sown in the fall, harvested the following July, to sell a portion of the crop, to feed part to poultry and livestock on the farm, some of which is sold, and to use some in making flour for home consumption, and to keep the rest for seeding. So that was a normal use of his crop. But in this particular case, none of the wheat that was subject to this allotment was sold at all. So no commerce, zero commerce. Under this regulatory framework, Filburn was subject to a penalty of 49 cents a bushel over his allotment. And if you run the math, the number of bushels he went over the allotment times 49 cents a bushel was $117.11. So that was his penalty, $117.11. So we're not talking about some massive amount of money, not even in 1941 dollars. And I looked it up. There's a website, which I just assume is correct, but you know, it's internet. Why would it not be correct? And if you plug in different years, you can see the relative relative value of the dollar. And so I plugged in $117.11 in 1941 and wanted to know what that would be worth in 2018. And it came up with $2,047.55. So even allowing for inflation, you know, in modern terms, we're talking about just about $2,050. So again, it's more than 117, but it's not, we're not talking $250,000 even in, in modern money. So I guess I'm just making the point that the money wasn't really the issue. The issue is the power of the federal government to tell you what you can do and punish you if you do not. The Supreme Court described what the point of the Agricultural Adjustment Act was. They wanted to control the volume of wheat. They didn't want to have surpluses or shortages. Surpluses and shortages would yield in low or higher wheat prices. And to fight that, the Secretary of Agriculture, quote, is directed to ascertain and proclaim each year a national acreage allotment for the next crop of wheat, which is then apportioned to the states and their counties and eventually broken up into allotments for individual farms. Think about this, that the central planning of this, the, the, the progressive nature of this, the smart bureaucrats are going to figure out how much wheat we need to grow for the entire country. And we're going to break that down into states and counties and individual farms and tell everybody exactly how much they can make, grow and sell. If that's not central planning, nothing is. There are a couple other issues that the Supreme Court dealt with that Filburn had argued, but here's the, I mean, everybody knows this for the Interstate Commerce Clause portion of it. And so this is how the Supreme Court described that issue. Quote, it is urged that under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, Congress does not possess the power it has in this instance sought to exercise. Pretty clear, right? Filburn saying Congress has the power to regulate interstate commerce. You don't have the power to tell me what to do on my own farm and I'm not selling it. Pretty straightforward argument, right? And the Supreme Court admits that he's not selling it, that it's not interstate and it's not commerce. They admit that. They're not trying to play funny with those words. Supreme Court says, we've already said that the feds, the Congress, has the power to regulate production of goods in commerce. So what we have to decide now is that this act, which extends federal regulation to production not intended in any part for commerce, but wholly for consumption on the farm, is subject to the Interstate Commerce Clause. So they're saying this act is going to regulate crops not going to be sold at all. So can Congress do that? That's it's pretty obvious, right? No, it's not commerce. No way Congress can do that. Well, that's for people that understand the basic words of meanings and have a desire to implement them. 
If you don't have a desire to implement those words, you make stuff up. And if you're on the Supreme Court of the United States and you've got Ivy League law degrees, political connections, ah, you know, we, we'll make it up. We'll make it up. We, we, we want this act to succeed. We want it to have effect. Therefore, we will make it have effect. You serfs aren't smart enough to tell us we can't do it. No, we're going to ignore what the words say. So they know what they have to address, right? And they say the act, the part of the congressional statute that was passed setting up this regulatory agency, quote, includes a definition of market so that as related to wheat, in addition to its conventional meaning, it also means to dispose of by feeding to poultry or livestock, period. So they've just included in the statute a definition of market, which means being eaten by an animal. A market is usually a place where things are bought and sold and offered for sale. But according to the statute, no, market now means livestock eating wheat. That's a market now, according to the statute. Now, Congress does stupid stuff like that all the time. They shouldn't, but they do. The Supreme Court is supposed to say, no, you can't do that. That's stupid. But they didn't. They said, well, you know, that's cool. You can do it. And I'm going to keep going back to this metaphor because I use it all the time. And I think it's true. If Congress defines the sun as the moon, it doesn't make it so. And that's what they've done here. That's what Congress did. And that's what the Supreme Court gave its stamp of approval to. Now, the language in this Supreme Court case gets even better. Quote, Marketing quotas not only embrace all that may be sold without penalty, but also what may be consumed on the premises. So again, the marketing quota, which they've implemented by this federal regulation, embrace what is consumed, not what is sold, but what is consumed. And Congress is telling you what you can sell without going to jail. Now, there's just this 49 cent a bushel penalty for growing more than your allotment. But what happens if you don't pay it? Eventually, you go to jail. And if you resist, they will kill you. And that's the big thing that status of every flavor ignore. Every single law is enforceable by the death penalty. Ask Eric Garner, who was killed for selling loose cigarettes. And that's just one example. There's a million of them every day. So Congress is telling you what you can sell without going to jail. And this isn't the drug war. It's wheat because they know what's best. They're going to manage the economy. They're going to manage the production of grain throughout the entire country. But the court continues. It just gets better and better. They, they go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. Listen to this. Quote, the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, in this case, we're going to be Filburn. Quote, the commerce power is not confined in its exercise to the re regulation of commerce among the states. Let that sink in. The commerce power is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the states. This is the opposite of what Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 says. What it says is Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the states. It's the Supreme Court. The commerce power is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the states. That's just mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing that we, that we, you know, that this country just accepts this. Night is day. War is peace. The sun is the moon. It's almost literally what they're saying. I mean, one more time. Tell me if I'm missing something, right? Because it's just way too obvious. The Constitution. Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the states. The Supreme Court. Commerce power is not confined to the regulation of commerce among the states. It's like listening to the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland speaking of the rabbit hole, right? Now, here's an example. It's like telling a child, I want to say a teenager, right? So you can let them go off to the Department of Social Services as it come to your house. So it's like, let's say a 16-year-old, okay? You tell a 16-year-old, hey, here's some money. You can go down to the store and I want you to buy a bag of Tostitos. One bag. That's all I want you to buy. Nothing else. But that doesn't mean you can't get some ice cream too. It's like you're, you're making a specific limitation. You're being explicit about that limitation. But then you're saying, don't worry about that limitation. Now you get whatever you want. 
only get Doritos, okay? But get whatever you want. That's that's what the Supreme Court has done in this case, and they do it all the time. You're strictly limited to doing one thing, but that doesn't mean you're strictly limited to doing one thing. Here we are, the sun is the moon, right? There's, I had to like not give you all the examples of how ridiculous this is, but here's another one. Quote, even if a Pelly's activity be local, so that's the farmer, even if the farmer's activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still be reached by Congress. So, the Interstate Commerce Clause allows Congress to regulate activity that is neither interstate nor commerce. We're so far the looking glass now, if we turn around, we couldn't even see it anymore. We are fully immersed in Wonderland. And, you know, I thought about this. I don't think this is because progressives really think the Constitution means this nonsense. They don't think the Constitution says the opposite of what they're saying it says, or vice versa. No, they don't. It's that they reject the Constitution. They don't like it. It gets in their way. Like Wilson said in that quotation, it has to evolve. The Wickard v. Filburn court is evolving it. They're evolving it at the direction of FDR and of Congress, who all are progressives who want to evolve it. But they're evolving it. Like, if you've seen the uh, the Alien prequels, Alien Covenant and Prometheus, yeah, the architect that were evolving all these kind of monsters. So the Supreme Court has evolved the Constitution into something entirely different. But that's what Wilson said. That's what we should do. The court goes on to say, quote, the wheat industry has been a problem industry for some years, end quote, as if that subjective value judgment has any bearing on the Constitution, the words of the Constitution. But since the Supreme Court believes it's a problem, here's the progressive answer. Central planners have to fix it. Bureaucrats, Congress, the president, they can fix it with production schedules and price controls, and the Constitution must evolve to let them do it. That's what they believe. The court goes on, quote, and then here's a quote. Australia, Canada, and the United States have all undertaken various programs for the relief of growers. Such measures have been designed, in part at least, to protect the domestic price received by producers. Such plans have generally evolved towards control by the central government. In the absence of regulation, the price of wheat in the United States would be affected by world conditions, end quote. Yeah, that's called an economy. It's called a free market. And FDR and Congress and the Supreme Court are explicitly rejecting a free market. They might as well be the Soviet Politburo. Damn the Constitution if it gets in the way. We got progress to make. We got constitutions to evolve. And in this case, the Supreme Court goes on and on about production numbers and about prices as if they are the central planners, not the executive branch, right? But they're, they're using these numbers to justify an economic policy behind a five-year plan. They're not reading the Constitution and applying it. They're justifying a government plan. And that five-year plan thing reminds me, you guys know Who Will Stop the Rain by CCR. It is a very libertarian song. Let me give you a, one, of the, one of the lyrics. And you've heard this a million times, and you may not have noticed it, but the lyric goes, I went down Virginia seeking shelter from the storm, caught up in the fable, I watched the tower grow. Five-year plans and new deals wrapped in golden chains. And I wonder, still I wonder, who will stop the rain? Don't want to get too much into this. Down Virginia, D.C. is in just outside of Northern Virginia, right? Seeking shelter from the storm. There's problems going around. I got caught up in the fable. I believed that the myth, I watched the tower grow. I watched the bureaucracy get bigger and bigger. And you can't get any more explicit than five-year plans and new deals wrapped in golden chains. John Fogarty is smarter than the United States Supreme Court. Supreme Court goes on in this case, quote, it is well established by decisions of this court that the power to regulate commerce includes the power to regulate prices. Hey, price controls. I mean, you couldn't get any more central planning than this. They continue to justify this idea of central planning. Quote, it is the essence of regulation that it lays a restraining hand on the self-interest of the regulated and that advantages from the regulation commonly fall to others. In other words, government is going to pick winners and losers when it regulates. And that's cool. That's what government does because the government knows what's best. 
got to hurt some to help others. Got to be cruel to be kind to continue with the pop songs. And that might make sense in a pop song, but not in government. We're going to lay a restraining hand on the self-interest of the regulated. Nope. You think you have a self-interest. No, they're even admitting it. They, okay, here's your self-interest. We're not going to let you pursue your self-interest. Because in our view, as the smart people, society will be better off if we don't let you pursue your general interest. Wicked goes on to argue a Fifth Amendment takings point. And that's the point which is outside the Commerce Clause argument. But there's still some frightening language from the court in that portion of the case where they reject that also. The court says, Appellee's claim is that the Fifth Amendment requires that he be free from penalty for planting wheat and disposing of his crop as he sees fit. We do not agree. End quote. Let that sink in. The court does not agree that a farmer should be able to plant and dispose of his crops as he sees fit. This may be another contender for most fascist statement in the federal court reports in our history. The court goes on in this fascist manner. Fascist last communist because they both are central planning tyrannies. Quote, it is doubtful that Pelley's burdens, that his burdens under the program outweigh his benefits. And he doesn't, oh, that's into the, the quote, and he doesn't get to decide if the burdens outweigh the benefits the government does. And to wrap up, what do I hope people take away from Wickard v. Filburn? I want all of you, all of you, to be able to tell people that that was the case with the Supreme Court upholding a New Deal program championed by FDR and passed by the Congress. Said that government could regulate activity that was neither interstate nor commerce under the Interstate Commerce Clause. Ask candidates, like I said before. Just ask them, hey, um, yes, thank you for coming. Um, do you think activity that is neither interstate nor commerce can be legitimately regulated under the Interstate Commerce Clause? And watch them try to defend that abject nonsense. And if they do call it out as being wrong, good, good for them. Now you know, and you've made a point to the crowd also. I doubt they will, but if they do give them credit, but if they don't make fun of them, and if they say, well, the Supreme Court said that it was okay. So it must be true. That's when you point out to them, well, what if the Supreme Court said the moon was the sun? Would that make it so? Would it be okay then? Stand up to this nonsense. Show it to people. Make fun of those who go along with the farce. Refuse to play along with the charade. Like I said last time, it's still pertinent. As Sam Adams said, it does not take a majority to prevail, but rather an irate, tireless minority, keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. Keep those brush fires burning and do it by pointing out the absurdity of what has been done to the Constitution and that we just go along with. We have to quit going along with it. We have to let people know what a joke it has become. Thanks again for listening. Holla at me with your comments. You can send me a tweet at Blue Carp. Go to facebook.com slash Blue Carp. Both of those places I'm listed as DK Williams, but Blue Carp is the nom day internet. I am DK Williams. This has been The Law with DK Williams. And as always, we're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.